Hollywood is apt to make one lose perspective on life. It takes a steady hand to keep your sense of balance. Louise Rayner. This is a little two-page dramatic pause before chapter 21. I have a confession to make. Since I adapted to life spent mostly offline and at the periphery of the dream factory, I let my wardrobe dwindle to t-shirts and jeans. There are some that would say my attire is only suitable to garden in, and right now that's fine with me. I suppose it's a mark of my age that I don't spend my safer-at-home hours in pajamas. But we were talking about the days before COVID-19. And in those days, in an attempt to draw attention away from the diminishing elasticity and youthfulness of my skin, no slicing and dicing of the same for me, and it's not because I disapprove, it's because I'm squeamish. I had begun to make use of a box of trinkets my mother gave me, amongst which was a strand of pearls given to her by her father, passed to him by his mother via a sailor husband returning from a South Seas expedition just prior to the dawn of the motion picture age. For a night on the town before the pandemic, I decked myself out in said pearls, black linen shirt, my best jeans, and black high-heeled boots. I felt somewhat presentable, but since I was never a jewelry-wearing dame, it was odd to me that as I walked, the pearls swung from my neck like a pendulum. I had to stop myself from catching them and holding them still against my chest. I would have made a rotten flapper. Sartorial problems aside, I had the best time. My friends and I talked about a director who, on being given his first big franchise feature, was also rented a patrician house on location where the Blue Bloods lived in Montreal. It was an old home, hung with oil paintings and portraits of ancestors in powdered white wigs. It was furnished quite beautifully, until the director moved in with his cronies. Not only were they slovenly, during one of their Bacchanalian evenings, they went around to all the paintings and drew penises, eyeglasses, and mustaches on each canvas. God only knows what else they did, but the producers on inspecting the house with the very unhappy owners immediately handed over a check for $475,000 in damages. My wonderful Shep, perhaps one of the most decent humans, and believe me, decency is a quirky attribute in a producer, and I was one, wrote a check on the spot. Nearly half an effing million dollars. I would have killed him. What a stupid young man. How would that line item been entered into the film's budget? Oh, and guess what? The Wonderkind is directing another picture, or he might be. At the moment, all bets are off for films in early pre-production. Pre-pandemic, the typical assumption was that producers had a private cabal where they exchanged secret information and kept lists of directorial transgressions, providing a useful reference on who to hire and not hire. That's a wonderful story. The truth is, information like that pertaining to the excesses of the aforementioned director and his cronies is embarrassing. It's usually hidden. It damages the credibility of those in power at the studio. 
I liken it to John Murray, Lord Byron's publisher, ripping apart the poet's memoir a month after his death and burning it page by shocking page in his fireplace. A huge loss for literature and history and probably a canny move for Mr. Murray and his business ventures. There's probably a parallel that can be drawn here between a deleted avalanche of emails on my Mac and the subsequent surge of calls taken on my cell. It's called taking care of the evidence, as if you didn't know. Jake refers to my not-so-carefree younger days as ye olden times. I prefer to think in geologic terms. And since we're talking about California, we can parse that as foreshock, earthquake, and aftershock. It breaks things down to their essentials, as you'll see. Chapter 21. 4.30 a.m., the morning of January 17th, came with a profoundly deep rumble and a rolling sensation like that of being on a choppy ocean in a small boat. And yet, the denizens of Los Angeles were all being pitched about on dry land. People suffered heart attacks from the fright. Facades fell away from old apartment buildings and the towers of downtown swayed on their foundations. I awoke gasping as my bed jostled and jerked beneath me. I stumbled to my feet and into the hall where I was met by a staggering Mr. Booker heading, like me, to Jake's room. When we got to him, he was crouched under his desk, arms covering his head, chin to his chest, rocking back and forth in such a way it was impossible to tell whether it was the quake's tremors or his own. All this took barely half a minute. At 4.31 a.m., an aftershock, almost as jolting as the 6.7 magnitude blind thrust earthquake rolled through the Southland, and just as it did, the phone rang in our darkened kitchen. Mr. Booker directed a flashlight toward the tone. I had an arm around Jake's unexpectedly high shoulders. The cliché about kids growing when you weren't looking no longer seemed so silly. We stepped over broken dishes and scattered cans, and there's a reason to sleep with slippers by your bed in Los Angeles to answer. Hello? Billy, are, are you okay? It was Cooper. How did you get through? Where are you calling from? For an irrational moment, I imagined he might be home. I heard about the earthquake. I thought the phone lines were down. How? Jake leaned against me. I could smell the shampoo in his hair the last traces of soap on his skin, and under it all, a kid's slightly sweaty, nervous rush. Are you okay? Mr. Booker was setting a battery-operated lantern on the countertop. It looked to me like something I was familiar with from my camping trips to Maine a very, very long time ago. Where in the world had he found it? I hung on tight to my son. We're okay. Where are you? Vegas. Oh, right. I, I was, I, I didn't go to sleep last night. I had the weirdest, I, never mind. I just heard it on the news. I was thinking weird my ass, but I said, Cooper, where's Sylvie? At home with Rosa. I, oh my God. Billy, I tried calling. I, his voice was getting raspy. I got that all circuits busy thing. My eyes met Jake's as he nodded. We're going there now. I don't know if I'll be able to call again. We'll bring them here. 
Mr. Booker had left the kitchen briefly to put a suit jacket over his pajama top, a pair of wool gabardine trousers, and a polished pair of brogues. We were in the midst of a perilous event, and the only trace of it in Mr. Booker's attire was a striped pajama top that could have been taken for a hipster's baggy cotton shirt. It seems to have quieted down. Jake, here's your jacket. Please put on your shoes and socks. I let go of Jake, walked through the pantry and laundry room, took my car keys from the hook by the kitchen door, returning to see my son drinking a glass of orange juice and Mr. Booker holding out one of his coats. Please put this on, Mrs. Taylor. Shall I drive? There was a tremor in the floorboards under my feet. They were rippling. Did you feel that? Aftershocks. No doubt there will be quite a few. Mr. Booker steered a course through the hills, avoiding main arterials. One doesn't want to impede emergency vehicles through the dark morning. He was unflappable, and I realized his calm was in inverse proportion to my anxiety. What was I thinking going out during an earthquake? I peered through the passenger's side window and saw a couple in their driveway handing out flashlights. There were others outside talking to neighbors they may never have had contact with before. A hospitable soul had set up a Coleman stove on their front walk and was serving coffee. I noted the phenomena and I filed it away. It took a natural disaster, but Los Angelinos did emerge and check in with each other. I had never seen so many people out and about, and at such a strange hour. I took a deep breath and was just beginning to feel my adrenaline level drop. When on a street cresting the ridge that separated the city from the valley, we began to see the bright blue flash of transformers arcing and exploding in the hills. We could hear the crack of electricity out of control and smelled smoke in the air. Every time the car shuddered, I couldn't tell if it was seismic activity or uneven pavement. Mr. Booker continued on, hands on the wheel, eyes on the road, lips sealed. I turned and smiled at Jake, who was canted toward the center of the back seat and focused on the view outside the windshield. I tried to suppress my panic, attempting to make my voice even and soothing. Honey, it's okay. Jake responded, calm now and vigilantly awake, still staring into the night. I know, I'm just looking out for wires and trees. Mr. Booker bobbed his chin approvingly, and I wondered if my son was much more mature than I had expected. Our circuitous route was leading us to one of the bird streets above the Sunset Strip, which Cooper Daniels called home. It was a tract of mid-century houses perched above the city with airline views. We stopped in the carport of 9260 Nightingale Drive. The houses all around were pitch black, but again, there were people out. One woman pointed above as we walked to Cooper's front door and called, Look up! Have you ever seen the Milky Way in the city? Never in my life! It hadn't occurred to me to stargaze at that particular moment, yet we, Mr. Booker, Jake, and I all turned our eyes toward heaven, and it was pulsing, glowing, sprayed every which way with shining bright stars. We looked down from the hillside at L.A., and it was unnaturally blank, just an inky expanse where street lamps used to blaze high into the stratosphere. It was a total blackout. Rosa took some convincing to leave, 
Mr. Booker, in cordial Spanish, did most of it, while Rosa snuffed out candles and glanced at me with a frown. Finally, she collected sleeping Sylvie, who only stirred when being strapped into her car seat, and we all made our way back home. Some hours later, as the sun shone on a cool day, I found my heart had gone into lockdown, at least where Cooper was concerned. Let's set the scene. Cooper had made the four-hour drive from Las Vegas, starting before daylight at, well, probably well over the speed limit. He arrived to see a domestic scene, a very shiny spoon that Mr. Booker had bestowed when she began to fuss, entranced Sylvie. She held it in her fist and waved it about, light glinting from its surface. Jake, while appearing to read Ender's Game on the living room floor, was really intent on the elders' conversation. Telltale sign? The pages weren't turning with the urgent rapidity of his regular reading. Rosa and Mr. Booker were murmuring in Spanish, and Cooper and I were in polite conversation neither of us could recall in any detail in the years to come. Perhaps because there was a radio in the background broadcasting about buildings destroyed, streets broken, gas lines ruptured, people dead. Or maybe it's because we were sitting with our children and putting up a good front. Well, it superseded both words and emotions. The broad strokes of our all-important discussion took place when we went off by ourselves to the kitchen to stack cans back in the cabinet and sweep broken dishware from the floor. The crux of it was this. Cooper had stumbled into an evening with a call girl, and shocked by the transaction offered, he had handed over considerable cash. She was so young, it freaked me out. After a non-consummated few moments, she left his room, and he stayed up all night, a jittery mess, or so he said. I saw her, I said, dumping a dustpan full of my favorite mugs into the trash. Thank you for telling me. There it was again, that cold sensation right at my core. Sea ice, northern ocean currents. Billy, you were there, you came? Where were you? At the bar. You were at the bar and you just left? My eyes traveled the floor as if searching for shards of glass, but really I couldn't cope with Cooper face to face. It seemed like I was interrupting something. Billy, God, why do you do things like that? Why? I didn't have an answer. I wish you had stayed. He shook his head in disbelief. But then... He glanced at the tumble of the kitchen. I don't know. God damn it, Billy. He reached for my hand, closed his over mine, and I said, I can't think about, I, I can't even, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry, Cooper. I know, he said. We'll talk about it later, I said. That later would turn into decades had definitely crossed my mind, but Let's assume Cooper was thinking it would be days. When Sylvie, Rosa, and Cooper left to make their way home, all I felt was unburdened. I continued to putter as the aftershocks rolled through, filling all five of the bathtubs in case the mains broke and checking the perimeter of the house for cracks with Mr. Booker. Bob Brown, having once again shut down his studio as Los Angeles shook, turned up 
around dinner time on the 17th. The last time he had made a social call was during the riots, and he partook of a backyard barbecue of things that had thawed in the freezer when the power went out. He joked and laughed with Jake and Mr. Booker, and observing my less-than-beaming face, faintly lit by another of Mr. Booker's lanterns, he assured me, You should have been here for the Silmar quake in 71. Buildings flattened like pancakes. We've got a whole new building code now. I was not assured, but he went on, patting the table between us. You come by the office next week. I've got something brewing I'd like to talk to you about. In the most proximate sense, there were simple things to deal with, and while in the days after the earthquake, Cooper and I frequently telephoned each other, reporting both our houses had not been red-tagged by the building inspectors, the bright desire that had lit my way for years was out, completely out. I doubted my capacity to make the right choice where romantic relationships were concerned and contemplated moving my family back to Massachusetts, away from our ridiculously massive home, away from riots and fires and earthquakes, away from danger, and most assuredly away from Cooper. Mr. Booker was matter-of-fact when asked his opinion. Wherever you go, Mrs. Taylor, there you are. Darla was true to form. You're gonna trade all this for snow up to your derriere? For God's sakes, Billy, do you know what the temperature is in Boston right now? Polly, usually so in control, looked shaken and said, But I'll miss you. Natalie was more brutal. Don't be a dope. Shit happens everywhere, and you have a movie poise for a big summer release, and that doesn't happen everywhere. She examined me closely. Is this really about the earthquake or that tall drink of water you've been carrying a torch for? I answered that it was about the earthquake, and Natalie remained unconvinced. Shep hugged me, then looking me straight in the eyes, said, Listen, sugar, it's all going to work out. Don't you worry. Jane, thoughtful, rested her palm on her stomach. I know you'll do what's right. Not completely self-involved all the time, I could sense a quickening where there wasn't one before and asked, Are you pregnant? Jane nodded happily. Patsy even made an appearance and weighed in, concise and assertive. But darling, the only pudding indigenous to Boston is referred to as sticky, and I know how you are about pudding. I think that's British. Same thing, little love, just stodgy stuff all around. You belong here, said Patsy with a flutter of her hand and a quick peck on my cheek that left traces of her favorite lipstick. My son wrenched my heart. He looked up inquiringly. Do you miss Grandma and Grandpa? I guess, a little. Yeah, but I'd have to change schools and I wouldn't see Andrew or Isabel or any of my friends. We'd come back to visit. Jake was pensive and said, I get that you miss them. I'd miss you, too. And Cooper? Well, Mr. Daniels didn't really address the questions posed about relocating and instead outlined future film projects, sought answers to the toilet training debate, and generally gave the impression that he was annoyed with me. 
we are all the lead character in our personal narrative, yet this bothered me. Behind the scenes was my forte. I wasn't ready for a starring role, never had been. Why was that? And why couldn't I stop thinking about myself in relation to Cooper? What also bothered me was that I was including him in a category usually known, at least in risk assessment circles, as an act of God, an unforeseen and unavoidable force of nature. And in that instant, I decided to stay put, remembering a movie line that justified my resolve. Nature, Mr. Olnut, is what we are put in this world to rise above. This sentence was pronounced through rigidly smiling lips by Catherine Hepburn, who played missionary Rose Sayer, as she poured out tugboat captain Mr. Olnut's, Humphrey Bogart's, liquor into the Lulanga River and the African Queen. The film was directed by John Huston, and the screenplay was by... Well, there were four writers. However, the one on location in Africa was Peter Vertel. I also remembered an anecdote about the whole crew of the movie and all the actors suffering dysentery on location, with a notable exception of Bogart and Houston, who, it was rumored, never drank anything but alcohol. That, my angels, is the myth of drunken genius writ bold. Wouldn't their livers have turned to mush? Such is Hollywood. It believes its own hype and prefers to print the legend. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed the story, please tell a friend.